Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. Hey everybody, we're here for Talk is Sheep number three. We got a special guest today. We're joined by Clay Lancaster uh, from Lancaster Expeditions and uh, Nahani Butte um, Outfitters. So uh, welcome, Clay. Clay get, uh, it's great to see you on the pod or the uh, Zoom cast here. Yeah, no, I'm glad I could make it. So looking forward to it. Fantastic. If you ask too many hard questions, though, I'm just going to get up and walk out of the screen. So <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Good. How are you, buddy? Good, good. Looks pretty sunny down there. Are you in, at home in Lumbee there, Clay, or where are you at? Yeah, no, in Lumbee here. It's actually been a really nice day out so far. So, but, uh, you know, Guys asked me to do this instead of being outside in the sunshine, so I don't know. <laughs> well, you're, you're I might be able to drink or two for it. Yeah, you're a celebrity, so um, <laughs> yeah, you're in high demand, and we sure appreciate it. So, um, so on that note, what the heck are you doing at home? So, why? What's the deal? I guess COVID's affecting the season. So, uh, actually, I'm in uh, in quarantine right now. So, okay. um, as my daughter says, I'm on my sentence. So, but okay. I just got back from Montana. I was down there um, checking out the Missouri breaks and stuff. So. It was a really incredible country down there. It was my first time actually getting to really be a part of something down there and, and uh, kind of give me an eye opener. That's for sure. Some real big sheep in that country. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I seen on your um, Insta that you were down there, you guys shot, uh, you were on a Kelly hunt or something like that. What was, no, it was a, it's Rocky mountain bighorn down there. Um, and there was a resident guy that had a tag. So those guys went along. I mean, I was just a, I was just an investigator and, and just going along to, see how things go. So they, uh, they got the ram and everything and I just got to look at them afterwards. So it was beautiful sheep, big old heavy ram. It was actually, I think of all the rams that the, the game warden had looked at down there, he said it was by far the biggest ram that he'd had a chance to look at down there. So. Is that right, eh? Yeah, yeah. there's amazing sheep coming out of that country these days. And uh, yeah, it's good genetics. Great country though, because it, it's the one place that I've been that most of those rams, they're dying at six and seven years of age. They don't live very long. That one they got down there was a nine-year-old, and uh, that was a really old sheep that we seen down there. So <laughs> they don't—they hit about six, and they're giants at six, and then after that, they just don't seem to live very long after that. So, so what's the, what do you think the issue is? Why is uh, longevity longevity an issue down there? Do you think? Um, my opinion is it's just the herd dynamics, the way they're set up now. I mean, over time, like they've killed a lot of those older sheep off. It seemed like and. You know, you're seeing it in places in northern BC and stuff now, too, where it just takes a long time for them to come back. I, I personally think that these big rams, they only get, you know, two, three years, sometimes four years of good, hard rutting. And a lot of these rams, when they're four and five, I mean, they'll do a lot of chasing, but then they get knocked around. And right when they want to try to breed, a big ram comes in, he knocks them out of there, and they don't get a chance to breed. So you'll see them a lot in a healthy population. They'll be up on the sides and kind of sitting there pouting almost. They don't get a chance to get in there. And all of a sudden, if you have a population that doesn't have a lot of those older rams, then you start to see, you know, 
the younger rams start to do the breeding, and I don't think they're smart enough to slow themselves down. And then they get to the point where, because of it, they uh, they breed way too hard. And then I just don't think they live long. And then that country too, there's there's something in the feed down there that allows them to grow really big, really fast. But it also, when you, I was looking at that nine-year-old, like his teeth were falling out in places and ready to be gone. Then I looked at a few other rams that got killed while I was down there, some five and six-year-olds. And same thing there, their teeth were really long in the tooth and getting ready to fall out. So it was kind of surprising to see that in sheep that are what I consider to be quite young sheep. Hmm. So. Yeah, it's quite a uh, difference from BC here where we see those older rams kicking around and we don't see them getting that big until much older. And uh, just, it's amazing the rams that are coming out of Montana right now that we just keep seeing. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool to see that there's uh, the genetics there and, and that they're doing so well. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, a phenomenal feed in that country too, so. Yeah, yeah, they're all they're sitting there feeding on the crop crop fields eh, and on the brakes well, and stuff. There's some crops, but the majority of places where those sheep are at are actually up in the brakes itself. And I had no idea how big that country was. When you start walking around in there, I'll tell you what, and it, it's a weird country because it's almost like you're hunting in the desert. But at the same time, when you're walking, it just drains the the fluid out of you. Like I've never been to a place quite like that. Now, when I go to Mexico, I know I'm gonna be hot. I know I'm gonna be drinking tons of water well down there it's a little bit cooler and you think oh no i don't need that much water and i'm telling you the first couple of days i was halfway through the day and i was like i need more water like so i started packing a really big pack um for the guy that was doing the hunting and myself just packing water and i could not believe how much water we went through there and it just sucked it right out of you so and then when i was with john he goes yeah this country will really drain the water out of you and i'm like oh i'm used to the desert it won't be a big deal but it did it really drained the water out of me so <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty cool country for sure. So, um, so n normally you'd be up in the territories right now. Is it, is this COVID stuff? Is it, what's going on with that? Uh, right yeah. Now? <laughs> I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't want to get too political, but I'm not really high on everything that's happening here with it. They completely shut us down. Um, I'm kind of baffled how I can go past the beach and burn in there and there could be 1500 people out there and that's okay. But I wasn't allowed to go to the territories with another Canadian guy and sit in a backpack tent and him have his own backpack tent. I mean, when you're out there, it's not hard to stay six feet away from each other. Mm -hmm. So to say my frustration level was very high this year, but not getting my season would be an understatement. So, yeah. but yeah, that's yeah, brutal. I, I'm really sorry to hear that. It's a tough time for the outfitters and definitely on our mind. And um, yeah, it's just unbelievable that uh, it's not going forward. So um, yeah. So Clay, can you just back up and like, you know, you, you don't need any introduction in the wild sheep world. Everyone knows who you are. And in fact, uh, when we're asking guys who you, they'd like to see on the podcast or the Zoom cast, everyone was saying, oh, get Clay, get Clay for sure. So, um, and the Lancaster name is, uh, you know, obviously uh, been in the industry a long time. I know your dad and your brother and uncle have all been involved. So do you mind talk, telling us a little bit about, you know, your start and your familiarity and, and you know, your history with the, the guide outfitting industry and sheep hunting and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I was, my dad first started out down in the East Kootenays in a small little guiding territory in the Bull River. And I was lucky enough to grow up in the industry. Um, I want to say I was two when he bought his first business. So when everybody else was, you know, in the summertime going to the beaches and doing all that kind of stuff, he had us in the mountains and we were working all the time and, you know, continuously cutting trails in different places and building cabins and um, I remember at times I look back as a kid and I, just, I thought, man, it's really unfair. I don't get to do that. You know, go to all these other things that all these other kids are doing. But as you get older, you realize, nope, they're the ones that didn't get the good deal. And I got a really good deal out of it. So your perception changes on a lot of the things over time. And 
Um, after that, when I think I hit, I think it was 13 or 14, he uh, decided to move north. He just decided it wasn't big enough anymore and said, let's go for it. And he, uh, he went up and bought a guiding territory, the one that he ran for years after that. With uh, He never even seen it. He actually walked into the Watson Lake Hotel and he walked up to the guy that had it at the time named Glenn Kilgore and said, I hear you're Glenn Kilgore. And he said, yeah. And he says, I want to buy your guiding territory. And Glenn said, well, I'm selling it tomorrow. And my dad said, well, can I buy it tonight? And he literally wrote him a check right there at the table to buy that guiding territory. And he never looked at it. And it was actually Ray Collingwood that told him, just buy it, just buy it. So the next day they jumped in an airplane and my dad was sitting there going, I just bought this guiding territory. And if you've ever been up in that country, when you first leave Watson Lake, it's nothing but flat timber. And it, you cross the border and you go for quite a ways further before you finally start to get to the mountains. And my dad said the whole thought process he had was, what did I buy? <laughs> How am I going to kill anything out of this country? But once you got in the mountains, it opened all up. And, you know, that was the start of it. And I was lucky enough that, you know, at 14 years of age, I got to go up and start going on these stone sheep hunts. I'd done some bighorn hunts with my dad back in the Kootenays. And, I mean, the first hunt that I ever got to go on, I was hooked. That was it. I was like, I'm going to be a sheep hunter. This is what I'm going to do. So, but then I got to go and start going on these stone sheep hunts and stone sheep at all four of them, they still capture me worse than anything. I don't know what it is about seeing those, that black and gray contrasting kind of colors. Um, just their horns, where they're living at. I still think they're the hardest rams to, to have to get to their country to get in on. And there is something about doing a stone sheep hunt that when you finally get a ram killed and you walk up and you put your hands on those horns, it's just, uh, it's a feeling like none other. So and once you get it in your blood, I mean, I, you're done as far as I'm concerned. I tell lots of guys when they come up to me at the sports shows, they're like, oh, I want to go sheep hunting. I said, have you done it before? And they're like, no. And I said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Listen to me on this. Don't start. Don't even start this. Just right now, just go home. Forget you ever did it. Go back to hunting deer and be happy with it. <laughs> They don't listen. And usually three or four years later, they come up to me and they go, this almost cost me a marriage. It's cost me all my money. It's cost me my time. But that's what it does to you, though. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. I was going to ask you if you had a favorite species. I was curious. So, uh, yeah, fantastic. Um, I think you covered it there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, I like the stones. It's, it's hard not to to get excited about them. I, they're a hard animal to hunt. Dolls are a lot of fun too. I mean, we got backcountry you got to get into and they're a long ways. I mean, you look at the Northwest Territories, especially, you're a long ways in there from a light bulb or a road or anything. I mean, and I really do like them. The, the thing with doll sheep is there's just more of them and they're white. They're a little bit harder. To, I mean, a little easier. Yeah. To see. So stones can be, they, especially if they get in any of that timber country, they're hard to find. So, but if you get them found, I'll tell you, there's nothing more rewarding, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. That's <laughs> awesome. So, um, Clay, Steve's a new sheep hunter. He's, uh, I think he's going on his first sheep hunt uh, next fall. So, Steve, do uh, you have any questions from kind of a, not that I'm an experienced sheep hunter, <laughs> but uh, from the newbie's perspective for Clay? Well, I, I was going to say, what advice would you give to a, a new sheep hunter? But you already said it. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't start. Don't but even go. Your wife's going to hate you. I mean, every person around you is going to be like, why? All he wants to talk about is sheep hunting now. And it just, it gets into your blood. And I don't know what it is about them. You just can't quit chasing them. So. That's pretty awesome. So like, what, what kind of gear, like if, if I was to go on a hunt, ready to go, what needs to be in my pack? Well, the first thing I would do, and this is probably the most critical thing I find if you're going to go do this, is 
get a pack that fits you. Now, a lot of people are going to say, oh, do this pack, do this pack, do this pack. There are packs out there of all shape and size that there is possible. And I've used pretty much all of them at some point in time. And, you know, and some of them are really good. Some of them aren't as good, but some of them have strong points and other ones have strong points. You just got to find what fits you. And I would recommend if you got buddies that sheep hunt, you know, and you're going to start training. And if you're going to do this sport, that's one thing I'll tell you, the better shape you can get in, the better off you're going to be. Um, and you'll enjoy it a lot more. Otherwise, you're going to go through three, four days. Everybody, you know, even if you're a great big guy, you can still do this sport, but you're just going to suffer the first three, four days. But if you get yourself in shape, as best a shape you can get in, you're going to be a lot happier when you're out there. Now, that being said, talk to them buddies. Get a pack that fits you really well. And just because four friends of yours are all using the same pack doesn't mean it's going to be the pack that's going to fit you. But find the one that fits you the best. Then start loading that thing. I see guys all the time and I'm watching them and they're stuffing weights and stuff inside their pack before they go. And I'm like, why are you doing that? That, that load is not going to sit there on your body the same as what your actual load is. So I literally tell people, practice packing your stuff. When I'm in the mountains hunting sheep now, and I got my backpack on, my stuff goes in a set spot inside that pack every single time. This rangefinder goes here, this thermarest goes here, this little tiny pillow, yes, I do pack a pillow, <laughs> and it goes here, and I have my set spot for everything. Because if you get up there and all of a sudden you come around a corner and you're on some rams and you need to make something happen, you need to know where that is. Like, are my bullets over here? Is my arrow quiver, where is it sitting at? And I see guys all the time, all of a sudden they start scrambling. And it's like, okay, we need to lighten up. We need to make a climb up on this part of this mountain. And they're, they're literally going like this and they're pulling everything out of that pack. And I'm just sitting there and I'll be standing there waiting for them because I have my stuff already in my hands going, let's go, let's go, let's go. Right. And it's familiarity and it, come, it starts with training. If when you're out there, start training, start walking with that pack. You should have your neighbors thinking that guy is completely mental. Every time, every day I see him walking by, he's got a backpack on. <laughs> and if they're thinking you're crazy, then they're probably right. But at least you're doing it the right way at that point. And then get light gear. I mean, I see everybody and, and really decide what you have to have. I mean, I've literally got to the point where I've cut handles off of toothbrushes just to make sure. And there's people going to watch this and they're going to laugh because they've done the same thing. I know they have, you know, and guys are sitting there and I'll see a guy with a great big tube of toothpaste in his pack. And I'm like, you should get that little tiny tube. You know, it's smaller, it's less weight. And I've literally taken my pack on several times with a bunch of guides. We'll sit around and we'll be like, okay, let's have a contest. We'll try to shave off stuff that we really don't think we need. And then we'll weigh it. And you'd be amazed how many times you can drop two, three, four pounds. You think, oh, that's no big deal. But I'm telling you, you know, over 10 day stretch, maybe you got rid of five pounds. It makes a big difference. So really decide the needs that you need to have and the wants that you want to have. I mean, everybody might have that little tiny whiskey flask with them that, you know, after the kill, you want to have a little drink or something like that. That is probably a want in most people's thing. You don't really need it. But at the same time, you know, decide what it is that you want to pack with you. Um, light sleeping bag is a must, but make sure you check out and talk to a few different people. There's so much information now that's out there on gear. I mean, there's some really good, if you're going to go with synthetic type bag, Kafaru's making some really good bags right now. Um, if you're in Canada, I mean, one of my favorite bags I use in Canada is the Taga. I mean, super light bag, a down bag that has, I mean, that what is it called? Uh, it's a waterproofing type down. Uh, 
super, super warm bag. Like it's one of the only sleep bags I ever crawl into that as soon as you get in, you're, you're just warm instantly. So, but there's definitely some equipment out there that, you know, you're going to like better than this. Not as good as that. I mean, get yourself a good thermo rest um, or some kind of mat. I've been using the big Agnes lately. I really like those. Um, they're, they're high. The older I get, for some reason, I used to just sleep on the ground and it didn't bother me, but now I kind of like to have a little bit more comfort when I'm sleeping and get a good sleep anyway. And then your boots. That's probably for a first time guy. Don't just go buy your boots the week before you're going to go hunting because you are going to pay. And I, especially this year, I've seen some pictures of some guys and I'm sure you guys have too in a couple yeah. of you know, forms. And I looked at their feet and I was like, that should not be happening. There's no way that should be happening. So I always take my boots at least six to seven months ahead of time and I'll wear the crap out of them before I go. And one of the best things that I've ever done is I like to go fly fishing. So I'll, I'll get a brand new pair of boots and I'll wear them out fly fishing and I'll get them completely soaking wet and then it stretches the boot out and then I'll dry it. And then I'll give it about three, four days once they're dry and I'll wear them again, stretch them out again. And then they kind of form to your feet a lot better that way. Dry them the next time. And then, you know, use some kind of Nick wax or something like that to waterproof them again. And away you go. And it's like, it can only take you a couple times of going and you've already got that boot fit in your feet like it's supposed to. When I see guys heels rubbing off and I see their toes rubbing off and, you know, I see toenails that are falling off. It's like, you're, Hey, you're, you got too small a boot on. You need to, you should be able to wiggle your toes when you're in there. If you're doing so much uphill and then especially coming downhill, you, if your toe is jamming into the end of that boot all the time, it's going to wear, it's going to give you blisters and it's going to cause your toenails to pop off. So, and I've been there. I remember one time, I think I was, 21 or 22 I couldn't really afford a lot I was just married and had a kid and I found a pair of boots that was on sale and I'm like you know it's only half a size too small that should be good <laughs> well I'm here to talk about blackened toenails and ingrown toenails from it and I mean it was just absolutely a horrible and dumbest idea I ever had so but I actually recommend the guys to get at least a half size bigger on their boot just because you can if you need to you can put a couple pairs of socks on there and then especially when you're going a lot of steep downhill, especially when you have a load on, you're not jamming your toes into the end of your boot. And it will make a big difference in the long run. So that's some pretty good advice there. So I'm fly yeah. flying around the screen here. So I'm gonna try to get <laughs> boots in a pack that fits. Exactly. Big, big things. And everybody's using internal frame packs all the time, which I really right. like. I'm actually using a, a couple different Kafaru's that are great internal frame packs. Stone Glacier's making a great one. Um, these are these are solid, you know get you to what you want to do. But I will say this, and there's a lot of guys that will argue with me out there, but I've done a lot of backpacking. If you start getting in a point where you're going to be packing your whole camp and your whole sheep yourself, you don't have a buddy that's going to help you. And you know that pack's going to be over hundred pounds. You might want to consider if you're doing a backpack, especially in the Northern part of BC off the highway or something, get an actual external frame pack there. They handle the load better. If you're dealing with hundred pounds and better, they don't pull down on the bottom part of your back. They just, everything about them is just better and rigid frame. Yeah. They're going to weigh nine, 10 pounds. And I hear guys all the time, Oh, the pack's too heavy to begin with. The pack's too heavy to begin with. If the difference between a seven and a half pound pack and a 10 pound pack is actually going to be the difference instead of throwing out an extra jacket or something like that, that weight there, you probably shouldn't be sheep hunting that. If that's a big difference to you. Makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff, Clay. Uh, good advice there, actually. I just... Uh, Kyle's was, writing it down. <laughs> I was running a pair of boots and uh, they were leaking on me. So I, I, I sent them back and they replaced them. But now I literally got them last week and I'm supposed to go on a goat hunt next week. So um, 
I've got an old set of hand wakes, so I probably run those, I guess. But uh, yeah, I, I'm a little bit nervous about that. So anyway, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting with the goat yeah. hunt. Well, I'll tell you the very worst thing that ever happened to me is I made it to Mexico one time, and my gear went to the southern part of Mexico. So I made a really big rookie mistake of not traveling with a pair of boots in my carry on. So when I got there, all I had on was flip flops, and they were not doing very well so i went over to walmart and oh, no. there's not a lot available for people with feet as wide as i am so yeah. i'm looking around in there and the only thing i could find that actually kind of fit me was a pair of crocs yeah <laughs> so i went with crocs and duct tape i bought a bunch of rolls of duct tape and every morning i'd get up and i would sit there and i would duct tape them crocs onto my feet and then i had a pair of pants that i bought there too that were about two sizes too big and they were about this long and about this big around but it was kind of built like a lot of the Mexican people are down there. And it was like, okay, that's, that's what I'm going to wear. And I put those pants on and I ripped them out the very first day. Those Crocs were just shredded. And every morning I'd wake up and I'd just start taping and tape all the way up. And I got to the point after six or seven days that there was enough duct tape on there. That they were kind of duct tape pants and duct tape shoes. And we ended up killing a ram. We went back into town and was hoping my gear was there. So we walked in the airport to go check to see if I have my gear. And the one fellow was walking beside me, he just looks over and he just shakes his head. And he's like, you're a beauty. I'm like, what <laughs> and I looked down and I realized that all of these people in the airport are looking at me. And I got so used to wearing them. I'm walking around literally with duct taped on pants and duct taped on shoes. And I still had them on. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> this is the way it goes. So now every time I have a carry on bag, I've got everything I need in there for at least a week worth of hunting. Advice. I guess wear your boots on the airplane, eh? Or at least make sure they're. Uh, I just stuff them inside. I make sure I got them in that pack all the time now. So, anyway, yeah, good advice for sure. So, uh, just curious. Uh, I, I talked to you the other day, and you were you were talking about your rifle. So, what are you running for a sheep rifle, then, Clay? What do you got? Uh, um, I had built up in Dawson Creek. There, um, it's a Rocky Mountain rifle um, from Core Lanes, and it's a 300 Ruger Compact Magnum. And it's, it's not a caliber that's been real popular. Um, mm. I didn't know a lot about it until they actually talked me into it. But what I like about it is you can, it's got a short action. The casing's a little bit smaller than a, than a 300 Wisdom, so you don't have the feed problem. And then it's got a 20-inch barrel on it. So the older I get, there's certain things that, you know, I try to shave everything off. And they actually built that whole gun for me, and it doesn't have kick to it. And with the scope and everything on it, it's six pounds, 0 0.009 ounces. And Jeez. it is a pack driver. So I actually, I took it out when I first got it and I, and I picked it up. I'm like, guys, did an amazing job. And all I could think is this thing's going to kick the crap out of me. But I was like, nah, it's a big gun. I'll, I mean, I'm a big guy. I'll be all right. And ended up going out and shooting it. And it shot unbelievable. And everybody that was in camp said, well, I want to try it. And it, uh, it shoots, I don't know. You, you, you got to see it. And everybody that sees one is like, I'm going to go buy one. So some of my clients bored it last year and every one of those guys is like, I'm getting a rifle built now. So, um, so Clay, something like that, is it hard to get ammo for? Are you, you pretty easy to find? Oh, it? Or do you I was worried about that too. I thought it'd be really difficult, but no, they, uh, what am I thinking? Federal, I think is the one that's making it. No. Okay. Um, oh, no, I'm having a mind blank here. Remington? No, it's not a Remington. It's made by, uh, Oh, it's Hornady. The Hornady. That's what it is. So it's Hornady animal. So, but yeah, it, it shoots absolutely unbelievable. Right. Hmm. You could probably edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs>
Mental note. I had a 7mm SDW um, for a while, and it was a great rifle and enjoyed shooting it, but I could never get ammo for it, so I ended up getting rid of it. I, you know, if I had more time, I'd reload, but I just didn't have the luxury of uh, going to the range and reloading and doing all that stuff, so I ended up getting rid of it. But uh, that was one of the things I was thinking about with that, that caliber, but it sounds like it's not an issue. So, You know what I did with it, actually, is before I let them build it, I went to a whole bunch of different stores just out of curiosity, and I said, hey, do you guys have ammo for a 300 RCM? Because I was like, I don't know, I've never seen it, but I'd never really looked for it either. And I think nine out of 10 stores I went into had ammo for it. So I was like, well, it's obviously available. So, but now every store I go into, just in case they might change it on me, I, I end up buying it. Because I had a, uh, what was it, 300 uh, Remington short action Ultramag. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a really nice gun. <laughs> I yeah. really liked that. But the same thing, they just, you couldn't find ammo for that anywhere. So I ended up getting oh. rid of that one. <laughs> yeah yeah it's a, the challenge I and mean, i just don't have the time to be going to the range and and um reloading and stuff like that so yeah okay well that's good i'm going to check that caliber out for sure so yeah, you're going to more, more. Yeah. Uh, cool um so in terms of emergency equipment clay like you're all over the world you're hunting the territories you're hunting um you know down south in mexico what do you what's a must for your pack for emergency equipment what do you run and what is would you recommend um, the guys put I've got a little first aid kit that I take with me all the time. Um, my safari medics, I could actually grab, I've got a big kit that they have that I have in my base camps. Um, but these guys, what they're doing now is actually really neat. They build an actual guides first aid kit and it weighs about a pound and a half, but they've even got this stuff in there that if you have an arterial arterial bleed, like a bad one, it'll yeah. stop. So oh, wow. it's, uh, it's come a long ways. And you know, those are certain things. If, if you're, caping poorly and you're pulling back towards you or something like that and say you stick yourself in your leg you know the country we get into our bear gets a hold of you or something that that arterial bleed is going to make or break the difference you're not going to make it through there so these guys are actually producing this now um it'll get to a point i think every ambulance every hospital everything's going to end up having this in there but it's a it's a foam and it comes it's really light comes in a little tube thing about that big around i could even grab it actually and uh it yeah just, run and grab it quick yeah run and grab it <laughs> I've actually got one of those Safari Medics, uh, the backpacker version of it. Um, oh, yeah. I just purchased it uh, this this past year for my hunt. Um, but the thing is, is it's it's pretty sophisticated, and you you start opening it up, and uh, some of the stuff I didn't know how to use. So actually, what interesting it comes um, with the purchase of it. You can contact the owner, and he'll give you a briefing on how to use it. Well, uh, that's, that's the case I need now. Mountain Medic is what it's called. Okay. Right. That's the one that goes in my base camp. And then this is, this is what it is. Well, that's it, eh? I mean, you can see it's not heavy at all. Yeah. And that thing right there, you can throw that inside your pack. You know, if a bear gets a hold of you or gets a hold of your dog or anything like that, that thing literally will stop an arterial bleed. Yeah. They, when we were testing it for the military, they uh, took a bunch of pigs and they, they cut the inside part of the leg on a bunch of these different pigs. And then they used this X-Stat and shoved it in there, sprayed the foam stuff in there. And when they did, I think there was 15 different pigs that they did it with and it stopped and saved all 15 pigs. Oh, so pretty amazing. Yeah. I saw that video, that video of, uh, Tim Wells, big ones, but maybe seen that video of Tim Wells from relentless pursuit where yeah. he, yeah, where he falls out of the, the tree or whatever. And the spear hits him in the leg right through his thigh. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, he was, he was pretty much giving his, uh, his eulogy to everybody saying I screwed up and 
big open wound there. He thought he was going to die under a tree, but yeah, that something like that would have been super handy. Yeah. Things you don't well, think about now where all my guides are packing one of these, these small ones, right. you know, whether it's going to do it or not, like I said, it weighs nothing. And any person that's going in the mountain should probably have it with you. That's good advice too. Things you don't think about, right? Like little things, everybody yeah. thinks of backpack and water, but don't think of life-saving in that way. Yep. And the cool thing with Mount Medic there, Clay, is they'll, they have, the owner, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, he'll actually give you a briefing. Um, you call him up and he tells you how to use all that stuff. Because I bought the, um, the backpacker version of it. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. And some of the stuff I was looking at, I didn't have a clue how to use it. So I, I emailed him. And, um, he said he's working on YouTube videos for his site and stuff, but he didn't quite have it up. But he said, give me a call and I'll give you a briefing on that's included in the purchase. So, um, yeah. They, no, Brian, so Brian's really good to work with. Everything that he does is top shelf. And what I liked about him is he actually sat down with about three or four of us different outfitters and like, you know, what is stuff that's actually going to work? And I mean, with his background, I mean, he's been all over the world and helped people in a lot of different zones. So he, he knew a lot about what he was talking about and, you know, and he was smart about collaborating. You know, there's ideas that I've seen guys have, Oh, you got to take this, you got to take this. And it's like, you start getting a bag that's going to be 10, 12 pounds. Well, who's going to pack that? I mean, it just doesn't fit in with our gear list. So that's why he came out. Like he does have those smaller versions that they're pound and a half, two pounds. And I'm not saying that it's going to save every single scenario that comes along, but it's sure going to make a big difference. I know that much. It's good. Yeah, it. It's a great little pack. I can't believe in the quality of stuff in it. And it's not cheap, obviously, but you know, it's something that you're, your life relies on it, right? And yeah. I think it's the apex or something. It's literally like a pound or a pound and a half, like you said. It's pretty, pretty scooping little uh, unit for sure. So good. Um, so any any others talk about gear, Steve? Do you have any other questions for Clay on gear or anything like that? No, it's it's uh, been pretty pretty uh, helpful. Like pack fit, boot fit, and uh, as as you saw in my last hunt, I literally blew out the boots that I had. I ended up duct taping taping them together yeah. so yeah if, if i'm planning on doing a, a mountain hunt next august or whatever start working on them december so you can't really wear them too long to break well, them. that's the thing buy your boots now you know get, get used to them another thing i tell guys is don't buy that one set of boots and because 10 guys all say that's the pair of boots you have to have they're everybody's feet are built different i mean there's a there's about three or four different models of scarpa the boots that i always like to use but there's only one model that actually fits my feet. The rest of right. them, they rub my heels, they rub my toes, they just don't fit me properly. But the one model fits my feet really well. Um, hmm. And you look at this Mendels, everybody wanted Mendels for so many years. Yeah. And that was a good boot for a while, but they made them real narrow. And for a guy that had a longer, skinnier foot, it fit them really well. I have a, a really wide, a 4E wide foot. And I could get about two weeks out of them and I'd start blowing the side out. And as soon as I would do side hill or had a big load on, that was it. Those boots were just destroyed. So mm. it just because it fits somebody's foot doesn't mean it's going to fit your foot. And that's the, that's the big ticket is to talk to guys, go to guys that are built the same as you are. I mean, if you're five foot 10 and you know, weigh 195 pounds, don't go talk to a guy that's six foot two and weighs 240 pounds. Cause yeah. he's not going to be wearing the same equipment you are. There's just no way he's going to. That's right. So, but that well, it's, uh, it's interesting too with uh not only the boots the insoles um you know there's so many varieties and you know we all know that they play a role but i didn't really think it was that important and uh i've been running a pair of hand wags and i had uh an insoles uh in them and I, I they were aftermarket i bought and i swapped them out and i bought a new pair of loas 
and I'd been training with him. It was fine, but you know, you, you train for an hour here or there. It's not. So anyway, day two of our hunt, I was in the back country, heavy packs heading in and my feet were dying and I pulled my boots off and looked at the insoles and um, the insoles were just rubbed right clear on the, like on the arch of my foot on the inside. And my hunting partners, Mike says, you got to trim that away. You can see it's rubbing there. And my feet were really sore in the arch. So I, t I took a, um, my knife and just carved it away um, about a quarter of an inch actually. And so the insole sat right down on the boot, just the way the boot was contoured with the insole and yeah. it totally saved my hunt. I was done. I, there was no way I could see that it was, I was starting to get blisters and I, I had duct tape on it, the whole works. Uh, we did that and I never got a blister the rest of the hunt. It was, the boots were perfect, but it was all about the insole. So it was, um, it, it shocked me how much of a difference that insole made in that case anyway. So. Yeah, I, I know that's why I tell people, make sure you try out all this equipment, be using it ahead of time. Like I said, your neighbors should think you're crazy because you're always walking around with a backpack and your boots on and try your rain gear. You know, I, I can't tell you how many guys get out there in the field and then they turn around and all oh, that rain gear didn't work. And I think, well, on the days that it was raining, especially guys that live in Vancouver Island, if you didn't go out and actually train at some point in time in the rain, what were you doing? You don't try right. that stuff out. Walk out on a rainy day and go, okay, I'm going for a walk. And you know, your spouse is going to look at you like, what the heck are you doing? But that's the time to go check it out. I see guys get out there and after one day of rain, they're like, Oh, my rain jacket is terrible. It all leaked right through. You should know that kind of stuff ahead of time. If that thing's leaking, get a new rain jacket before you ever get out there. Right. So I've got a Swazi jacket that I wear that it's 16 years old, you know, and I treat that thing about three times a year, but it's still an amazing rain jacket. So you got to find out what fits you and what works for you and, and uh, do it ahead of time. Don't do it when you're already out there in the field because that's when all these real big screw-ups start happening. So, yeah, you hear too many horror stories of guys that are buying a, a ton of brand new gear and then they're taking it up two weeks later and they have no idea how it's going to work for them. So that's more And another thing to do too is I just had a guy the other day tell me about a trip that he was on and, and he was upset because, you know, a horse bumped his gun on day two and then he got a shot at a ram on day seven and and I'm sitting there and listening to him and I started laughing. He goes, what's so funny? I go, that's your fault. Yeah. Goes, no, no, no. And I said, it's not the horse's fault. It's not the guide's fault. It's nobody's fault, but your own. Yeah. At any point in time, if I'm on a hunt and all of a sudden, I mean, I've had it, I don't know how many times, all of a sudden my pack flies off or, you know, it tips over funny and it lands on a rifle. It's no big deal to look at a tree or a rock a hundred yards away, take a shot, a single shot. It's not going to make a big difference. It doesn't sound any different in the mountains than two sheep, you know, hitting their heads together. So take a shot, make sure that everything is on. And, and it's not only for your benefit, it's for the animal you're shooting at too, because right. you owe it to that animal to make sure that you can humanely harvest them and quickly. If you get out there and, oh, I didn't know if my gun was on or not on, that, that's your fault. There's nobody else you can blame or look at but yourself. If you have a question on it, take five seconds, pick a rocket a hundred yards. You don't need to start sighting your rifle in, but, if it's off, then you're going to have to lose some altitude, get out on a belly somewhere, and you will have to sight it in. You're going to have to get that thing back on. You can't just go up there and go, well, I think it's good enough, and go with that, because usually that leads to a whole bunch of problems. Yeah, that's great advice for sure, Clay. Um, and that's good to hear you talk about um, shots uh, out in the bush, because I've done that a few times where I've been out there, and I wasn't sure about my rifle, but like, oh, shoot, I don't know if I want to take a shot and scare something off. Uh, but, it, you know, my experience, too, is whenever you've, you've shot at something that it doesn't, you know, if it sounds like lightning or what exactly it sounds like, but it doesn't, or sorry, thunder, um, it doesn't seem to bother them that much. No, it doesn't. Uh, so, so it's good to know that 
from your perspective, you, you, what you've seen is it's not a big deal to take a shot in the, cause there's lots of times where I've, you know, I, I've been back there and yeah, I wasn't sure about my rifle and I thought oh, maybe I should take a shot, but I didn't want to do it in case I scared somebody. So yeah. We were actually one time we were on stock, my brother and I were, and this rifle fell off on the guy and it bent the scope like right down onto the top of the barrel. Oh, wow. And we were within 400 yards of these sheep. Oh, no. And I'm like, oh, no. So we took a knife and we just pried it. We stuck it underneath, pried it back up. We kind of looked at it. It sort of looked like it was level. And we're like, okay, we, we got this thing figured out. And we're like, well, we can shoot at it. And we're like, you know what? Let's just go back around the corner. We went back around the corner about 200 yards, pointed the barrel away, picked out a, a rock that was about 50 yards away, and said, let's just shoot at that. So we shot it blew the rock up we're like yeah it's on like it it's definitely on it was, and that was after prying it back up to looking like it was level then we snuck back around the corner those sheep hadn't even moved stopped right in on them and ended up shooting them that's so, amazing wow yeah yeah I would they're never... all worried and panicked about it but i mean you got rocks rolling all the time you got thunder striking you got them hitting their heads together they're, they're used to hearing a noise like that so a lot of people get too panicked. Oh, don't shoot, don't shoot. But no, shoot. You owe it to that sheep. You owe it to the hunt that you're on, to the sheep hunting partners that are with you. Make sure you shoot that gun. Make sure you're going to hit what you're looking at. So, Yeah, that's good advice for sure. So, Clay, um, just one last gear question for you. Is there anything, like, obviously you've seen, you've been doing this since you're two, so you've seen a bit of evolution in the industry in terms of gear. Um, so is there anything in the last couple of years that came out that you go, hey, i got to have this, and now it's, something you bring with you is there anything that sort of has changed what you do or something you carry that you never used to you know for scouting and actual hunting and stuff like that i would say the one thing that i absolutely have in my pack all the time now is a phone scope mm -hmm. i mean i put it on there i mean pretty much everybody's got their their phone with them nowadays and i never thought i would be that guy that was packing it but i gotta tell you they take such amazing pictures that it's if you're just going to take you know field photos and just some pictures while you're out there I actually don't even see the purpose in taking a camera anymore. Now I like to take, you know, a little bit better photos. So I'm always packing a bit bigger camera and, you know, filming video and everything else. But if all you're doing is on the hunt, you know, you just want some field photos and you want to, you know, picture your camp and that kind of stuff. I would just take my, my cell phone with me, make sure you have that. But you take that adapter and you get out there and you start taking some pictures. It's like, Oh, you should have seen this Ram or you should have seen this. Or I passed this one up. And the one thing that I've gotten from all kinds of guys that, uh, I've done these clinics on aging now is I would say I get 30, 35 photos a year from people now that are sending it to me and they're going, Clay, I passed this Ram up. He looks like he's only seven years old. I didn't want to shoot at the seven year old Ram. And I'll look at the photo and a nice crisp, clear photos. And it's like, yep, you're right. You're hundred percent. Good choice. So to me, you know, make sure you have that. Um, I got on, on a Ram one time and he was 30 feet below us and we rolled out on this point and, and I can see him. I actually could hear him. I could not find him. And I was like, I know he's got to be here somewhere. And then I heard him chewing. And I started to look out. And I could just see the butt end of him. But I couldn't get far enough out that I could actually see his horns. So I literally took my, my phone and I put it all the way up. And I leaned my arm way out over the top of him, tipped it back in, took a couple of pictures, pulled it back, blew it up because it was close enough. I'm like, oh, one, two, three, four. Oh, yeah, he's nine years old. I'm like, okay, we can kill this round now. Wow. <laughs> So he finally come out of there and he got in a good position that we could shoot, but I wasn't sitting there trying to judge him at that point and just, Oh, wait, let's see if he's old enough. I'd already knew for sure that he was old enough because I'd already taken a picture from right above him. So, and the one thing I do like about those phone scopes is you take that picture then you can grab it and just kind of blow it up on your phone. It's like, okay, now you can age them a lot easier 
So for me, especially young guys that are getting out there, if you got that question mark, if you got a phone scope with you, plug that thing on there and buy the little adapter. So many people don't buy the little adapter that's on there. It weighs nothing. You just got to make sure it stays charged up. And I mean, it's still remote control. You just hit the button and your phone just keeps taking pictures for you. You know, and it'll take video too. And then it's such a good reference tool to be able to look at it and go, okay, this is what I'm looking at now. So that's the one thing that, you know, has changed probably in the last four to five years of me that I just don't go anywhere without that anymore. Hmm. So, so, so when you're field aging a ram, like, what are you looking for? Is there a behavior that these older rams exhibit or what's, what's the, yeah. the age one? One of the things I talk about all the time with I'm doing with these clinics is aging body stature and so many people don't understand that. And it applies to not only sheep, but to elk, to deer, to moose, everything. You can, you see these things. It's just like looking at when you see a 20 year old guy standing out there, or you see a 40 year old guy, or you see a 60 year old guy, they all stand different. And it's just, that's the nature of the beast. I mean, we all get older. You can fight it as much as you want, but that's, what's going to happen in time. But when you're looking at these rams, you know, the first thing I always look at is what's the ram that's moving with the whole group that's watching him. Because when it's that lead ram, everything's going to keep watching him. He'll slowly shift over to one side of the hillside. And you see him kind of pull away. He doesn't turn and come back. All the other ones go to him. So that starts indicating when I'm looking a long ways, you know, four or five miles, and you can't really tell what you're looking at. That's one of the things that I see. So I'm like, okay, so now I know which one I want to focus on. So I'm not sitting there trying to do spot and scope time looking at a half curl. Because no, if he's the one that's following everybody all over the place, that's not the ram. You don't want to be looking at him. So then you get it in your head, okay, this is the ram from her dynamics. This is one that I want to look at. And then the next things that I start looking at is, is the top of his back straight? If he's got a perfectly straight back, odds are he's eight years old and under. If he's got a sag to that back, then I know I'm starting to deal with a nine-year-old ram. You know? But you're not going to see a noticeable sag. A 10-year-old ram, you're going to see a, it's a very visible sag to him. But a nine-year-old ram, what he's going to have is a big old pot belly on him. When you're going to see that as a little tiny bit of a sag, but you're going to see this huge belly where you come from brisket and all of a sudden it just drops way down and you see this big swaying belly to him. You know, that is indicative of a nine-year-old sheep. An eight-year-old sheep, he'll come straight back and he'll have just a little bit and his back is poker straight. I mean, there's no fluctuation. Seven-year-old ram, if you're looking at his underneath is perfectly straight and even comes up a little bit and the top of his back is perfectly straight so when i look from you know two and a half three miles and i see something where he's coming along and it kind of sucks up a little bit and his back is perfectly straight he might look like a really big sheep i mean he could be a full curl you know six seven year old ram but he's not around that i'm even the least bit interested in and sometimes you'll see those groups where you know there's seven eight nine ten rams there and everything looks like that you know, and I'll have a guy say, okay, we need to get going. I'm like, no, there's no reason to go over there. There's nothing in that group that we need to go look at because there's no old rams in there. Hmm. And when you get to the point after you study them enough, you'll see that. So then the next thing I'm always looking for is when you look at their nose from the side is it'll come down and it has that Roman nose on it. Right. So as I start to get closer, maybe I can't quite steal it. The horns look full curl. Is he six years old, seven years old, nine years old? I don't know. But when I get a side profile of him, if I see that nose and it's just poker straight and then all of a sudden he faces towards me, it looks nice and narrow and even all the way through. Then I know I'm dealing with a younger sheep too. If he turns his head sideways and it comes down and I see this big gap off, you know, it breaks down and then comes down again. I know I'm dealing with at least a nine-year-old ram. And those are all the, that's the key things that I'm trying to find on my rams. I want them to be nine years old and older, preferably 10. I actually, when my guides and stuff in my camps, if they're killing 10-year-old and older rams, I pay them a bonus. 
So if they come back into camp with 10, 11, 12 year old ram, they get paid a bonus for getting it. If they get an eight or a nine year old ram, it's just a wash. Like I don't pay them a bonus, I don't do anything. But if they're killing a seven year old and under ram, which rarely ever happens, usually it's an accident. But if that does happen, then my guides get a fine. Cause I just, if you're gonna make a mistake, you're gonna pay for it. That's the way it goes. So we don't shoot those kind of sheep. And I said, eight and nine, yeah, we'll shoot those. And then 10 year old and older, yeah, you're gonna get a bonus out of it. So, and then there's a lot of guys that tell you absolutely do not shoot any eight, nine year old rams. The only argument that I have with that is I've seen a lot of sheep that grow really big, really fast, that'll make eight years of age and they never live very long. Those rams that are way bigger than everything at an early age and they just, their bodies are 50, 60 pounds heavier. They've got massive bases, low slung horns. You just don't see those rams make it a long time. And I think it's because they start to rut earlier than before. They don't get a chance to get beat up a little bit to be to become a dumb ram, and they just rut too hard, and they just kind of knock everything else out of the way, and they haven't learned how to go slow about it, so they rut hard, and you know they get at six, seven, eight years old. By the time they're done that eighth year, they're pretty much done. It's really rare to see those sheep hit nine years old. So Clay, um, you talked about the young rams, six, seven, um, and then eight, nine is a wash, and then ten guys get a bonus. So um, obviously you're Part of it's keeping the customer happy but there's a conservation concern there so what, what what's the driver for that what's the the for our, for our listeners why is it important that they're harvesting older rams like that um you it, give us it's a dynamic in your herd like if you're going to sit there and keep killing you know six and seven year old rams you're never going to get those nine ten eleven year old rams i mean you've already shot them before they ever get to that point and then on top of that is you watch the rams that are lead rams of any kind of group it's very rarely a six seven year old ram so you don't want him to become the lead ram at six and seven years of age. You're hoping to have some of these older nine, 10, 11 year old rams. And they're the ones that are gonna take, all of a sudden you get that real bad snow year. They're the ones that are gonna sit there and take those other sheep to a different spot. They're gonna make sure, hey, I know where to go to. You know, Six years ago, we wintered over on this spot when the snow got really deep. So the other ones are gonna lead those sheep into that special spot that allows those rams to make it through that winter and come back in the next season. If you don't have that and they've never been there, all of a sudden you got a six-year-old ram and he's leading everything. You might lose all them sheep. I mean, every one of them. You might go back the next year and go, it's really weird. There's a whole bunch of young rams. Now there's nothing left in there. Well, odds are that they didn't know where to go to. And that's what happened. So when you get those older rams, you know, you need to, you need to make sure that some of them exist. And it needs to be like a nine-year-old and older ram. That's what should be leading your groups out of there. You know, guys get in there and they're looking at all these different sheep and, oh yeah, there was three of them in there that were nine or 10 years of age. And we got all three of them. It's like, yeah, that probably wasn't the best idea you ever had in your life. So I do recommend to guys just because there's sheep in there, you know, don't be greedy all the time. Just kill an old ram out of a group and leave it, you know, get going. Sometimes you're going to do a double header. I've done a bunch of them in my life and with guys where we killed two rams out of there, but I always try to make sure that there's at least, you know, two or three other mature rams in there so that something's going to be able to lead that group out of there. And if you don't have a bigger group like that, when it was 11, 12 with, you know, four or five good age and mature rams, then just take one out of there and be done with it. And it's a hard thing to do. And it's easy for me to say, because I've been on so many hunts, but um, if everybody would take that general idea of, you know, let's not kill everything out of here. And then the worst thing that I hear about is a guy goes out and has a real successful hunt and they kill a nice ram out of an area. And they go back with four guys the next year and kill three rams. And it's like, you, you just can't pound areas like that. You know, I've got a really good friend that I've hunted sheep with a bunch. And we got one special area we go into all the time. And we go in there and pull a ram out of there. One time we pulled two. And that was it. And we pull a ram. And then we'll leave it for a year or two and go pull a ram. 
And every time we go into that place, there's always some great big monster mature ram in there. And it's just because we've never went in there and just started, you know, killing everything that was in there. You just, you got to be careful. And these sheep are real susceptible to overharvest a lot more than people think they are. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and then we end up in a situation where uh, it does become a conservation concern and we're, we're on LEH and stuff like that. So we're, yeah, we're not getting any further ahead for sure. So um, yeah, well, hats off to you and, and all the work you do there for educating guys on that play and, um, and just, encouraging guys to be shooting the older rams you know as we know in bc here uh regulations with thin horns is eight or mature ram right um, or past the mill sorry so um yeah and and we you know we, we've heard you know anecdotally that there's a lot of young rams being taken and then obviously it's having a conservation concern something that's on the radar for sure so um it's good to hear from you that that's important to be harvesting those older rams so appreciate it um, so let's go back to the horn aging then. Um, so we talked about body stature. Um, any other tips or tricks or anything to help guys in the field with with trying to determine, you know, age of rams or anything like that? Anything else that comes to mind, Clay? Well, I always tell everybody about how I age the annuli. Um, and it's it's become kind of a argumentative thing right now in British Columbia. And I'm I'm a little frustrated with some of the people that are in that position that they're not understanding exactly what they're doing and that's the only way i can describe it um you know i know how old these sheep are i've measured i cannot begin to tell you how many of them i've measured in my life uh, in the northwest territories we have to measure the length and the circumference of every single annuli every year so i mean i've literally measured thousands of sheep and when i see people sitting there and they start talking about a lamb here being you know six inches long and six inch circumferences i'm like it's impossible. It's anatomically impossible for a sheep to be like that. You take a, a lamb that's born in the springtime, you know, they'll grow a little bit. And then by the time they hit that fall, that's when their, the growth to their horn stops, you know, and all that, the protein that they're getting goes into their body. I mean, Valerius Geis is probably one of the smartest biologists that there is out there that studied sheep his whole life. And he'll tell you the same thing. And when a person sits there and tries to tell me that, Oh, Hey, yeah, this sheep's got six inch circumferences in his lamb year. And it's like, his head's not big enough. I mean, I got a huge head and I don't, I'm not sure I could grow six inch circumferences and it just doesn't make sense. And I sit there with people and I'm like, you guys, you're missing a lamb year completely off there. This is the second year. And the big thing that I notice is a lot of these sheep, they don't, they don't grow a whole lot in the second year. And the funny thing is there's people that, Oh yeah, they grow a ton. They grow this, they do that. I've seen a lot of sheep, you know, the majority of rams, thin horn rams at three years of age are all pretty equal. There's not a lot of difference with them, but from three to four and four to five, then you see some huge jumps that start occurring. That's when all of a sudden their body gets bigger. They, you know, they've caught back up to their self. They, maybe they were a late lamb when they were born or something like that, but there's not a lot of difference in a lot of these sheep. Two years, you can barely, I mean, it's, they're almost uniform across the board at the size of them. And then when people go, oh no, this is what it is. That ram's this and that ram's that. I mean, I killed a ram at a BC myself, a bighorn that he, uh, He's got 17 and 5 eighths bases on him. And I can tell you that when you go to a second year and you start looking at it, okay, you can see the circumference. But as first year, and this is on a ram that big, he doesn't have six inch circumferences on him, not even close to it. So when I look at a sheep like that and I know that he doesn't have that, well, how can a thin horn sheep have it? It's just not possible. So right. I'm a little frustrated with a lot of that stuff that's going on. I mean, the rule is eight years of age. And if they're eight, they're eight. I would like to see them change it. I mean, there's a conservation officer out of Kamloops that said to me one day, he goes, well, what about if we changed it to eight visible annuli? 
And I thought about it and I was like, you know something, that is one of the smartest things that I've heard. And I think that's the best way to go. You know, make it eight visible annuli. If you see a ram, he's got broomed off or whatever, and you, you're wondering about it, and you, they don't have those eight visible annuli, then don't shoot them. So mm-hmm. I think it's a great thing to do. What I like to do, though, is I look at the, the crown of the, of the sheet, and I look from the nostril right to the eye, and I go straight back. And you'll see that annuli there is always the easiest annuli to see, and it's usually their fourth year. And when it shuts off, it's usually a really easy year to, that you can look at. And then I go forward from there to where he starts to roll up. So I go straight up from the back of his eye. So I end up going about two and a half to three inches up off the base of his horn. And I look for that annuli there. So I look at these two annuli in this part here. And I should be able to count four. If I can count four inside that crown area there, then I'm looking at an eight or nine-year-old gram. If I can count five in that crown area, I'm looking at a 10 or 11-year-old gram. If I count six in there, just quit counting and start shooting. So. (laughs) But it does, it, it's very effective. Um, I've hunted all over the world. I mean, it works on Marco Polos. It works on um, desert sheep. It works on thin horn sheep. It works on everything. So if you see those four in a crown, that ram's going to be eight or nine years of age. And I find it frustrating when a guy goes in to get a sheep aged. I see four in the crown and then they tell me, oh, it's only seven. I'm just like, it's not seven. It, it is not seven. <laughs> so, but I've seen that um, that diagram you've done with the with the perpendicular and um, and and the four rule there um, on your Instagram. Do you mind if I grab that and we'll share it with our? Uh, on yeah, the, the, you got it handy. Yeah, we'll we'll grab it afterwards and we'll integrate okay. it with this because uh, I, I thought that was a pretty uh, informative uh, uh, picture there. It had a pretty good uh, understanding of it with that. So uh, yeah, no, it's. I'd like to do it the next time you guys are are having. Well, hopefully, we get it next year. But if we do have one, um, I actually went and bought a bunch of sheep from a, a guy that had killed them out of a Yukon. Um, so now I have them and I want to use them in a seminar. And there's actually some six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-old rams in there. And I'm building a post for them. And each one of the posts, you can turn it out into the room and I can actually turn the set of horns. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, I'm just hoping that it, it'll help people a lot more so they can see it. And you literally can stand back at the end of a room and you can look with your naked eye and you start really picking that out. And once people start paying attention to that, it's like, all right, you guys can see this. You can understand it. So and I've helped a lot of people. And they, I, like I said, I get 30, 35 pictures a year from guys going, I didn't shoot this round. I thought he was six. Didn't shoot this round. thought he was seven. So mm-hmm. it's definitely working. And I'm glad to see, you know, a conscious effort by people not to kill them. And I'm not saying don't ever shoot one. I mean, I've seen guys shoot these rams that are Boone and Crockett rams and they're seven years old and they're two inches up over the nose. I mean, I'm not saying don't shoot that sheep. If I was in their shoes, I'd probably do the same thing. But at the same time, you know, if you've done it once, try to avoid doing it again. No matter mm-hmm. what you see the next time, don't shoot one of those sheep again. You know, nothing frustrates me more. And I walk into somebody's trophy room and I'm like, they're so proud. And they're showing me these rams and they might have six or seven stone sheep on the wall. And none of them are eight years old. They're all six and seven year old rams. And it's like, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to them sheep to be better than, than shooting those all the time. You know, you take a kid out there and maybe a kid shoots a seven-year-old ram and it's his first sheep. Okay, that's fine. But you're, as that kid grows older, don't be shooting any more of them if you can consciously help it. I mean, make every effort you can to know how old that animal is before you shoot it. Mm-hmm. So. That's sage advice for sure, Clay. Um, well, appreciate that. Yeah. Steve, do you have any other uh, agent questions for, for Clay? No, that pretty much, <laughs> pretty much covers I, everything you read online says horns are the most important, but I realize now you look. Don't even bother looking at the horns until you look at the body style, the, the herd dynamics, the profile yep. of the nodes, 
then worry about that. That, that there's so much more to it than I thought. And that's awesome. When you start looking at those, those body stature things, it's really rare for me to shoot a sheep and be surprised when I walk up to it on the age of it. Usually I walk up to, I know it's nine years old. I know it's 10 years old. I know it's, you know, once you get 10, 11, 12, it's a little bit harder to tell there. Right. And then it comes down to really studying the annuli, but all the way up to 10 years of age. Cause at, at 10, not only do you see that real sway back and the pot yeah. belly, but you start to see a gaunting in the hips. You know? Okay. So when you start to see those kind of things, it's like, yeah, we're dealing with a really old mature sheep here. They're getting old for sure. Good stuff. Um, so Clay, I got a scenario for you here where, you know, a guy's been hunting for sheep for years, um, new hunter, um, hasn't killed his less than one club. And, um, and I think they say the year you start hunting sheep is the, um, uh, that's the year that's your the, sheep is born. Your, kill your sheep is eight years later, right. Or nine or whatever. So, um, so for, for someone like that, that's, uh, you know, been out maybe five, six, seven times and, and still, hasn't had a chance to get their first sheep, hasn't put one down and maybe passed on some seven-year-olds that were legal or something like that. What kind of uh, advice would you give them? Anything that they can do a little bit differently? Obviously come, come get you guys to guide them. But uh, aside from somebody that doesn't have the resources to do that, do you have any advice on, for kind of an experienced guy that hasn't killed his first sheep yet? You know, it really comes down to try to get as much information as you can. Gather it from people that you know. You know, try to get a hint from this person or that person. And then probably the biggest thing I can say and, and something that most guys don't want to hear is don't quit. And when you get to that spot in the mountain where you go, okay, I'm done. There's nothing going to be passed here. We haven't seen anything. Let's just get going. That's the point you got to dig in and go over the next hill. And nine times out of 10, the guys that are coming back and not getting sheep are not putting in more effort. And there's guys that are going to listen to this and go, oh, I did this and I did this. And then all of a sudden those same guys will go hunt with somebody that is successful at sheep hunting. And they're like, I can't believe how much that guy walked because <laughs> they realize that, Hey, he does go over the next hill. He does go around that next mountain. He does go look in that next drainage. And those little things like that, you don't know where those sheep are going to be at, but every time you look in one, that's what gives you the advantage. And then the other single thing that makes way more sense to me. And I've watched, especially young guys, they got all this energy and they get on top of a mountain ridge somewhere and I watch them just hoofing her and I'll see them a couple hours later. Holy crap. They're way over. Not, whoa. Now they're on that one over there. And all I can think to myself is you just walk past everything. <laughs> you didn't take the time. So the, what yeah. I would recommend to guys, if you really want to help yourself out is be prepared to go to the next place. But when you go to the next place, be prepared to spend time there too and sit down and have as good a pair of binoculars as you can have. Now, people say to me, oh, if you're going to spend the money, what would you spend money on? And a lot of guys are, oh, a really good spotting scope, so I don't have to walk as far. A really good rifle scope, so I make sure I get it when I, when I kill the animal, I see it, and I'm going to get them. And, you know, I've got some rifle scopes that, you know, are not the most expensive rifle scopes, and they still work. I'm not saying they work as good as my other ones do, but they still work. A spotting scope, okay, that's definitely a good thing to have. I can tell if that's a sheep over there or it's a caribou, you know, and I know i got to close the distance. but you got to find them first and until you find them you're in trouble so i tell guys all the time if you're going to invest in something invest in a really good pair of binoculars because if you're going to sheep hunt you're going to spend every bit as much time like this as you do walking and a lot of times i've watched guys and they walk right past it because they haven't looked that area over good enough and if you get on a ridge line and you're walking up through there 
and you find a whole bunch of sheep shit and a whole bunch of beds and, and it smells like sheep around there and you go, yep, they were here, but you know, they're gone now. No, they're still there. And a lot of guys don't realize that they're still there in the area somewhere. And what you need to do is get to a good vantage point and be willing to spend a couple of days watching and watching like a hawk. And all of a sudden you'll pick them moving up out of the timber somewhere. You'll, you'll find that they're hiding out in a big boulder field somewhere. And I mean, I've sat on, on mountainsides where I've looked for six, seven, eight hours and seen nothing. And then it's like, all right, I guess we can go. I'll just do one more look. And it's just like, oh, there's a ram. And you don't know where he came from. You're like, I looked there a hundred times and all of a sudden there he is. So those are the big things is be willing to go to the next spot, but be willing to put your time in when you get to the next spot. And if you're not, if you're just kind of rushing through everything all the time, you're not going to be successful at sheep hunting. It is a long, arduous, tedious job. But if you get used to the mentality of it and you get to the point where you start to like in your head and enjoy how hard it is to find these things, then the hunt becomes amazing. That's when you start going, okay, here's the challenge. This is what the challenge is here. Actually, when you find a sheep and getting them harvested, you know, I don't find that difficult, but it's the, everything that leads up to trying to find that ram. Now that's the difficult part. And to keep yourself mentally tough in it, most guys are not ready for it. They're not ready for the physical side of it to keep going, but they're also not ready for the mental side of it to go, okay, one more mountain, one more mountain. Okay, sit here a little bit longer, sit here a little bit longer. And you know, a lot of times you're sitting on the hillside and you're, you're freezing, you're cold, you got all, every piece of cloth on, the wind's blowing. You're like, nothing's moving on this, I'm gonna go sit it out. I can't tell you how many times I've sat there and I'll watch a place and I'll be like, there's something here, I just feel there's something here. And I sit there and I'll sit there and sit there and I'm like, I don't care, I'm gonna walk out of here in the dark. That's what I'm gonna do. And that last 10 minutes of light, all of a sudden I'm like, there he is. And some ram will pop up from somewhere. And I'm like, I got a sheep. Now it doesn't mean I get to go after him that day, but I know I'm sleeping on that side hill somewhere. And the next morning when I get up, I'm on top of him. I'm going to make sure I get him. And that's happened to me so many times. It's not even funny, but if you're willing to do that extra little bit all the time, you're going to start seeing your sheep hunts become a lot more successful. That's great advice for sure. Um, so just, you mentioned, uh, binos and, and glassing just briefly do you run 10 by 40s 10 by 50s what what do you run for <laughs> for years and years and years and i still have them from the time i was 15 years old i have a pair of 8 by 32 binoculars really oh yeah wow. okay. and i still have those binoculars that my dad bought for me and i mean they were great binoculars then and i still use them a lot especially if i'm doing a lot of whitetail hunts now if i still had my eyes like i did when i was in my 20s i'd probably that's all i'd be using Right. But that being said, I have got a little older and I use these tens all the time when I'm doing any of the hunts around here. And when I go to Mexico, I actually use twelves in Mexico all the time, just because they're a little bit harder to see some of them desert sheep sometimes. And, you know, you do a lot of glassing for looking for desert sheep. There's so many little places that they can hide in. So I use the twelves down there. Um, and I'll use twelves if I'm doing a pack in that's, you know, a day in or something like that. But if I'm two, three days in and stuff, usually I'm using the ten forties. That's what I, that's my go-to are the 1032s. I actually prefer the 1032s because they're a little bit lighter on my neck and a little bit easier to pack around. So Perfect. I run 1032s. I'm ready to go. Yep. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of glassing techniques and clay, and, and obviously the biggest one you just mentioned is just putting the time and getting behind the glass and not giving up and sitting there all day. But aside from that, anything you can give us just a little tip or a gem that, um, you know, your approach to when you're glassing, um, you know, any tips or techniques that worked for you over the years? I, I like uh, any kind of a spot and scope head that I can use for, for doing 
some kind of a, a lateral plane. And what I'll do is I'll pick my area that I want to glass into and I'll sit down behind that scope. I get myself all hunkered in there and get the legs all adjusted properly. And I put my head in there and all I do is just tap, 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 tap. And I'll just, I'll do a complete plane all the way across. And then I'll drop that scope a little bit. And instead of going the same direction again, I'll go the opposite direction, but I'll go just a little bit lower and I'll tap, 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 tap. So I do these grid planes all the time. And you can't believe with a spot and scope how many times all of a sudden, oh, there's a sheet. And I'll pick off a piece of a horn, a little tiny piece of a white rump, you know, and I'll say to guys, yeah, I got a ram spotted. And they'll be like, where? And I'll turn the spot and scope up like right there. I don't see it. You know, they can't see it in there for any reason whatsoever. But you, you teach your eye to not to look for a sheep. You teach your eye to look for something that doesn't belong and that doesn't look completely normal there. And that's when you start to pick up things that, you know, and you look for those shapes. Um, in nature, you know, like straight lines and stuff are not always common. So if you see a straight vertical line, you know, with black and white, it's, a lot of times it's a leg or you see a, a rounded horn, you know, it's sticking and curling out. And all of a sudden you're going down a ridge line. It's like, wait a minute, that shouldn't be there. No rock looks like that. Bush don't look like that. So then you get watching it and pretty soon you see it kind of do one of these. And it's like, oh, wait a minute, that's a horn. So mm -hmm. those are all little things right there that, you know, I tend to look for when I'm trying to get a, get a sheep pound somewhere. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's great advice for sure. Um, so like you'll, you'll put it on a tripod and you'll, will you do it with the spotter or will you do it with the binos sometimes as well? Um, I'll do it with the binos once in a while. I, I tend not to because a lot of people use the binoculars on, on a tripod like that, but then you got to have that adapter with you. So if, if I'm in Mexico, I'll have it. But if I'm doing a backpack somewhere, to me, that's one piece of equipment I can get rid of. So right. I try to go with a really good tripod, but a light tripod. If I'm doing a, you know, a hunt somewhere for bighorns and say I'm hunting the southeastern part of BC and I know I'm going to be you know, checking out all a lot of roads and stuff. Then I usually got a really good tripod that stands up that I can just stand there and look through and everything. But if I'm doing a backpack one, I got this little tiny Gitsu, you know, it just comes up. So it's high enough with the angled eyepiece that I can look into. And it, it's really light, like really light. So, right. and I'll use that one. So my equipment changes depending on the hunt that I'm going to be doing and the sheep that I'm going after all the time. So okay. and another yeah. thing to do is instead of using that, like, I, I don't know if you guys use them anymore, but the older I've gotten, I really like trekking poles. So I'll use them a lot. And what I like to do is I'll get somewhere and sit down and then I'll put my trekking pole and I'll sink it down to the level I want. And I'll put my binoculars on top of that and just push down on it. And then I just use that to steady myself and then just turn everything from the trekking pole. And I use them a lot. Even, even in Mexico, if I'm hiking into a place, instead of taking a tripod with me, I'll just use those 12 powers with a trekking pole and just look with off of that. And you'd be amazed how steady you can keep them. Uh, that's a really good advice. Yeah, I use trekking poles as well, but I've never thought to use it as a, a stand for my binos. So I'm going to try that for sure next week. Um, well, that's fantastic. Um, so what are your plans this winter then, uh, Clay? Are you, are you heading down to Mexico? Is that still on the agenda or what's the plan? There? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm taking off in November. I'll be back down there in November, December, January, February, um, probably the first few days of March. And then coming back, and I'm hoping to have a season in the Northwest Territories for next year. Um, yeah. If we don't, I'm going to be awful upset with the government up there. We might have to talk, maybe not quite as nice as we talked this year. So we'll go from there. So the Mexico stuff, how many hunts will you do down there when you're down there? Like how many, how many clients will you have? Um, I'm usually doing anywhere from 15 to 18 trips down there. So okay. and then we chase some deer around a little bit, hunt coos deer. 
I, I tell guys all the time, if you really enjoy sheep hunting, um, go hunt coos deer because it's a lot like sheep hunting. They're, they're one of the smartest animals that I've ever hunted in my entire life is those little coos deer. I really enjoy it. Everybody told me, oh yeah, you got to chase the big snoring mule deer. And I, I really like chasing that big snoring mule deer. But if you give me a, a couple of days where, hey, Clay, you want to go hunting for yourself? Yeah, okay. Do you want to go after a coos deer or one of them big mule deer? I'm going to take that coos deer every time. They're, <laughs> they're a challenge, a real challenge. So that's cool. So you, you do guided hunts for that as well. You, you'll, you'll sell a coos hunt as well. Yeah. I, I, what my job is down there is I accompany everybody on the trips. I've actually got Mexican guides that are down there and everything else. So they're the ones that are going to be, be with the guys I'm with everybody. And I just accompany everybody on the trips and make sure everything's set up the way that needs to be set up. And the ranch owners are the ones that want me to come in there and handle everything. And it's just, it's easier to be along on the trip to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, fantastic, Clay. I know uh, we're running out of time here and you've given us an hour and a half of your day. We really appreciate it. And uh, I, I just want to say thanks uh, from the society. You know, you've been a great longtime supporter, uh, donor, uh, your life member, and just uh, an advocate for sheep hunting and, and somebody that we all admire and look up to and really respect. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us today. And um, so do you think you'll be back for March 12th, 13th? That's our show this year in Kamloops. So we're still, yeah, I, my goal right now is I'm with my schedule sitting there to be back on the 3rd of March. So I'm hoping I can make it back to the show. So I did, I actually made it back last year. I was there when, right when everybody said, okay, we're not going to have it. And, you know, I had some knives I had to pick up there. So I drove up on the, I guess it was the Friday and picked up the knives and I, you know, I had a little tear in my eye that we weren't going to have the show, but I mean, that's the way it goes too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, every year I, I know it's a challenge because you're down south and you're you're doing your guiding stuff and it's right at the cusp when you're coming back and you're like, can you save me some tickets? And, and we're <laughs> so, so we're, it's always a struggle trying to, and of course you're a priority. We want to make sure you're there and it's, a, you know, it's always so anyway. I, um, so do you think you'll be able to um, do a, a horn aging for us this year? That'd be great if you could have. Yeah, have I could definitely do that. Not a problem. Yeah. I'd like to bring this tree that I have in now though. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm working on this tree right now and it's kind of cool. So I can bring that in and I'll have all those other rams on there. So it, it's really, it's a good tool for people that have never done it or never went out before because they can really see what a six-year-old looks like and a seven-year-old looks like. So I was actually thinking, I was going to talk to a couple of taxidermists because I would like to take some mannequins and actually make a mannequin kind of look like a six-year-old ram, you know, narrow the nose up and make it smooth right. and make an eight-year-old look like they do and a 10-year-old look like they do. So it's something that I thought about doing. Um, I just don't know if I'm gonna have the time to do it this year, but I kind of need some taxidermist or somewhere to step in and give me a hand with that. Right. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Know anybody. <laughs> Any taxidermist watching this, let us know. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It'd be a great resource for sure. And, uh, no, well, we appreciate everything, Clay, and I uh, just want to wish you the best of luck this winter, and hopefully that uh, all this stuff gets settled down with COVID and that you guys can have a normal season next year. And if there's anything on our end that we can do to support you guys, you know, with, with whatever that may be, we, we sure do what we can. But uh, just want to thank you for all your support and everything you've done over the years for us and, and wish, you, uh, wish you luck this fall for this winter. All right. I appreciate that. So you guys have a good time. Good luck with everything. Um, I hope those new boots work for you, but <laughs> I kind of <laughs> think you might send me a picture of, of some bad feet. So, yeah. Anyhow, Steve, good luck on your trip up there. So, get her done. Get all your spot right now, though. Oh, I'm working on it. I've been asked Kyle. I've been bugging. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to find out who your neighbor is, and I'm going to talk to your neighbor. And if your neighbor tells me that you're not crazy, then you're not putting your time in. 
Oh, they've they've done it crazy for years. I, I skin bears and moose in my driveway. Oh, there you go. Perfect. I'm nuts. So they're used to That's it. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks. All right. You too. Take care.